Good Morningville Church. Good morning. If I have not had the joy to meet you, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. And we are teaching through the book of John. We are in John 17 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up there. Um, John 17 is one whole chapter of the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And what's really striking about this is that Jesus is praying for specifically his disciples. And then in the prayer also, he says he doesn't just pray for those 11, because Judas was already departed, but he also says that he's praying for everybody else in the future who is going to trust in him. And so even in this prayer, Jesus is praying for each and every one of us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior. And so um, this is a really important prayer. And so our focus has been, like Jesus, how do we come alongside of people? And how do we pray for them and over them? Uh, I want to say just this last week, I have never had more people personally call or ask me to pray over them. And I just, I want to say, I just appreciate that. When you ask somebody to pray over you, there's an acknowledgement that this is beyond you. It's an acknowledgement that you actually need help in this thing. It's an acknowledgement that you've hit your, your limits. It's an acknowledgement that my, my brain can actually only handle so, so much. I find it interesting that most of us know when to ask someone to pray for us, but why does it do that? Why, why, why are the scriptures very concerned that you approach someone else and have them pray over you? Why, why is this a really vital aspect of being a community? Is praying not just generically for somebody when I'm at my house and they're there, but there's something very communal, personal, and present about the way the church is supposed to pray for each other. Here's what I've learned about myself. I am not the best person to pray for me. I do pray for me a lot, (laughs) but I'm not the best person because do you know what I can't see in any challenging moment? Literally anything else but me. I'm obsessed with me. Pain, heartache, challenges, disappointment, they put me in survival mode and I get tunnel vision. So I, I, I wrote down just a handful of common prayers over the years When I'm in this mode, these are the kind of prayers that I throw up to God. God, help me. God, fix this. God, change their mind. God, vindicate me. God, take this away from me. God, heal me. God, work this out for my good. God, change my kids. Change my wife. Change my fill in the blank. You get get where I'm going. None of these are bad, by the way. Like, I don't think God minds when you candidly, in authenticity, bring your prayers to him. When somebody else prays for you, though, it's sort of like the veil is lifted for a moment, and you realize in that moment it's not actually completely 100% all about, about you, right? Even when somebody just prays, this simple thing, God, would you help them bring you glory in this. That, that prayer just alone, like right there, you're like, okay, all right. I have to think differently. This isn't just about get me out of this. This is about how do I make you look good in this moment. And, and there are so many benefits, by the way, of having somebody pray for you. Um, you get empathy, you get support. I mean, sometimes just somebody else knowing what you're going through is very healing and it's very helpful. You get another voice to bend God's ear, which don't we all want as many people like bending God's ear in our behalf? Yes, we do. But one of the greatest 
values of having somebody else pray for you is that they tend to ask God for very different things when they're not in the moment than we might even say. And I would dare say, I find that when people pray over me, they are praying far better prayers for me than I do for myself. Here are some things that I think is just wonderful to ask God when you're praying over somebody. God, what are you doing here? God, what are you up to? God, what's your agenda in this situation? God, how will you be most glorified here? God, is this thing even about this person? God, can you show us how they can become more like Jesus through this? God, does your word address this in any way? If so, would you lead us to that? I've learned that as I pray for people, I think if you've prayed for people, even just a little bit, you're going to understand this, that often their myopic eyesight of what's happening is just one thing, get me out of this pain, this heartache, this frustration, this difficulty, this challenge. When you pray for someone, it's almost like you, you kind of intuitively know that this, this thing actually might not be about this thing. There might be more going on here. And, th- and there's a general principle here, which is this thing is rarely about just this thing. That, that God is often up to way more than just you in any singular moment. And sometimes when you come alongside and you pray for somebody, you help them get out of their myopic vision of themselves. You help them see that maybe, maybe, just maybe, what you're going through is for someone else which is not what most people in difficulty want to hear. Amen? Open up your Bibles, John 17. Last week, this week, we're learning how to pray for people. John 17 takes place on a Thursday night. And this is a very stressful Thursday night for everybody. And Jesus is going to do what he so often does. He gathers the disciples and he prays over them. And I appreciate that even Jesus' private prayers and his public prayers all seem to be out loud so that people can hear. It's an interesting practice that he has. John has already clued us in that the disciples, all of them are troubled. They are anxious. They are stressed. They are confused. They're disillusioned. They, they kind of, I think, know cognitively that Jesus is going to be killed very shortly, but they're having a hard time believing it, wrapping their head around all of this. And I'm really thankful that John recorded this prayer. Jesus, in terms of like the emotional context, is hours before his arrest, betrayal, and then ultimately the next day on Friday is going to be his crucifixion. And, and what Jesus shows us is how to pray for somebody else when their entire world is falling apart. But there's, there's even a deeper level to this, which I think is what makes John 17 honestly just so beautiful. It shouldn't be lost on any of us that, that Jesus is pouring his heart out to God for these men while he is personally facing the greatest challenge any human has ever faced in all of human history. Have you ever been at the end of yourself and then had somebody come to you and say, would you pray for me? It is the last thing you want to do. What's interesting is sometimes I find that this happens because as I start praying for someone else, I realize that it's just like I want them to get out of their myopic view of themselves, I also need to get out of my myopic self-centered view of myself. 
How do you pray for somebody? So last week we had three things. Today was the fourth thing. Uh, last week it was be confident in your relationship with God. No, I will not re-preach that sermon right now because there was a lot there. But number two, point them to his glory first. Number three, ground them in the gospel. If you want to go deeper there, you can listen to last week. But this week we're going to explore, I think, the most difficult skill in prayer. Seek to discern both the felt need and what God is actually up to. So learning to discern God's will is a skill. It takes practice, it takes time, and it is hard work. If I were to have you raise your hand and say, how many of you would like God's will to be really easy? Like everybody would say, yeah, tell me now. Have you guys ever learned that God's will is incredibly difficult? And when he does give it to you, he gives you little small pictures of it. As we said a couple weeks back in our series on the Holy Spirit, the, the pattern in scripture is that God exclusively tells his people only the next right thing. That's it. And so we're trying to figure out God's will in all of this. And when you're, when you're praying for somebody else, I want to just release you from the burden. It's not your job to fix the person. Amen. It is not your job to find out the totality of God's will for that person. That is their job. If you're the one in pain and heartache, it is you and God. You have to figure out, God, what are you up to? And when somebody comes alongside of you to pray for you, it is their job to support you and ask God, Lord, would you make your will for this person clear to them? And here's the deal. It's probably not going to happen in that moment of prayer. It's probably going to happen in a series of events. Maybe as you open up God's word, maybe it's going to happen in a conversation in the future. Typically, when we ask God to reveal his will and his next step, the answer doesn't come right then. It takes a little while for God to reveal it. And if you open up your eyes and you listen attentively for the answer to the question, what is the right next step? The Lord, usually sooner than later, will show it to you, but not in the moment of prayer. So when I pray for somebody, I have very low expectations for God revealing everything that I want to them in that moment. But I have great expectations that that person will walk away in 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, that the Lord is going to show them what that right next step is. Uh, Romans 12.2, great passage on God's will, but I, I think um, we focus so much on the beginning of it that we miss the end of it. Here's what it says. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so when we preach on Romans 12 too, we talk about the transforming of our minds, the renewal of our minds. And we're in the world, we need transformation 100%. And, but what's next, I think, is striking. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. Whatever it is, it's gonna be good, acceptable, and Perfect. And so Paul, Paul himself, I'm going to kind of break this down very simply in four, four words. Paul's teaching that to find God's will requires asking, discerning, testing, and evaluation. We want it on a silver platter. And God's like, ask, test, discern, evaluate. And so even as we see this, like this, this should be a release from the person praying over someone else. Your job is to help them in this process, but you can't do this process for them, usually. Sometimes, though, the Lord will give you an insight. The Lord will show you something, and you can use this voice of encouragement, this voice of discernment, and speak directly to them. But even then, it is theirs to try to figure out with the Lord. All this means is that figuring out the will of God is really hard, and you have to be intentional. As a, as a man... 
learning the will of God, I found it often to be like learning the mind of a woman. Gentlemen, if you're lazy, you'll never get it. And all the ladies said, amen. It requires asking, discerning, testing, and evaluating. (laughs) And the men who know the heart of their wives practice. They do. By the way, even though they say men are simple, I I sometimes think we're we're pretty complicated. (laughs) And this this cuts both directions. Proverbs 20, verse 5, actually, I think encouragement for the men, we're not shallow, says this, the purpose in a man's heart, it's like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. That, that there is a process to drawing out and understanding the deeper things that are, that are happening. And I found it's the same way with God. So when you pray for somebody, you, you are entering into this process of helping them reframe, be God-centered, and then begin this task, joyful opportunity to discern and test, God, what are you doing in this thing? So as we read John 17, one of the perks of being Jesus is he has this thing called omniscience. And so he, being God, knows the will of God, which is a little frustrating. So he can actually just go pray God's will. So if Jesus was praying over you, he, wouldn't, he would just pray the thing, right? He'd he, he pray to the deepest level. Our challenge is that I'm not omniscient. And uh, I have to go through this whole process myself of figuring out God's will for my life, let alone your life. And so, like, what we find here is that Jesus ends up praying the explicit will of God in John 17. And, and what I just really appreciate about this whole thing is that there are a whole bunch of felt needs in John 17 by the disciples. And you see those felt needs. And, and what I so appreciate is that Jesus just goes deeper to the actual will of God for each of them. And that's, and that's what we want to do. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three felt needs, and then we're going to look at what Jesus actually prays. And I, I hope the net result of this is not only that you pray for each other more consistently, um, but that you center people when you pray for them um, on God, get them off of themselves a little bit, even just for a moment, but also that we, we begin to pray the deeper things. We begin to ask God, I, I see the felt need, and I love praying for felt needs. Should we pray for felt needs? Everybody say yes. Yes, but don't stop with the felt need. Okay, God, heal them. But what else are you up to? Would would you show us the deeper thing? Because sometimes and rarely the thing is just about the thing. All right, John 17, here's the first felt need. Uh, They want easy happiness. Anyone else? I want that. But Jesus prays for hard-fought joy. Last words before he prays, John 16, 33, In the world, you will have tribulation. Nobody wants to hear this. If you're going to live in this world, it's going to be hard. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And then he prays. And let's go down to chapter 17, verse 13. He says, now I'm coming to you. He's talking to the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When you understand the emotional context of this statement, it's ludicrous. Because in the other Gospels, Jesus is moments away from going and praying alone, 
where he is filled with so much anxiety that he's sweating blood and pleading God to take this cup from him. If there's another way other than bearing the full weight of your wrath on my body, soul, and emotion, can we do that? Not my will, of course, but yours be done, right? So the fact that Jesus in this moment, in this emotional context, is saying and praying, God, you know the joy that I have right now? (laughs) Would you give that to them? That feels ridiculous. Two things. What, what, did, what did the disciples expect would happen when the Messiah arrived? Here's what they expected. Instantaneous, global happiness and peace where they ruled with the Messiah over the entire world. Could we, could we call the entire crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ plus 2,000 years so far of heartache, martyrdom in the world of believers unmet expectations? Good. How do you guys deal personally when you have unmet expectations with God to any magnitude, let alone to the order of this magnitude. All right, second, why in the world is Jesus asking for joy? Because when somebody's hurting, right, empathy, validating grief is a good thing, is it not? The last thing you want to say to somebody who's grieving is, don't worry, be happy. That's ridiculous. It's interesting because I I don't think that's what he's praying here. Listen to Hebrews 12 too. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What? How, How is it that there is a very real side of Jesus that is petrified of the cross? Physiologically, his body is responding in profound ways. And simultaneously, there is a joy pushing him forward. Like, can these two things coexist? Can can deep sadness and grief and joy simultaneously exist in you? Yes. And and, and somehow the scriptures, like, show kind of the full range of Jesus' emotions. And there is a reality here that he is deeply sad, overwhelmed, anxious, and troubled. And yet he is moving forward because he knows the joy that is going to be birthed out of what he is going to accomplish on the cross. And we we learned something, I think, profoundly powerful from Jesus in John 17. Like Jesus, mature Christians face the full weight of grief while at the same time fighting for joy. That's ridiculous. But this is what Jesus models. What do we want in grief? I want to wallow. And that is where I want it to stop. And, and there is this tension, and I don't, I don't fully get it. I have never mastered it, by the way. Whenever there are sad things that happen, I don't know how to simultaneously sometimes allow grief and joy or anger and joy or sadness and joy. Like, I don't know how these things were like, I'm still figuring this out, but I do know that there is something here. And Jesus is like, listen, Father, they're gonna go through it. They're, they're gonna go through unbelievable hardship. And somehow I pray that the joy that I have as I face my hardship right now, that you would give them that joy that you would help them understand that even as they face this, give them a vision for what could be happening in this that is bigger than the pain of this moment. Because if you, if you have a vision for what could be, you can endure anything, right? Like moms and dads, will you not happily be tortured if it means your children are spared? Absolutely. And you can be grieving and for the joy set before you, defend your children and sacrifice your life. 
You get this intuitively. Is it gut-wrenching? Yes. And here's what he's praying for these guys. They're all going to face their own murder. He just told them that in the last two chapters. But, but your murder isn't going to be wasted any more than mine is going to be wasted. We have, to, we have to understand when we're praying for somebody is that God is up to more than just this thing. And so Phil's Church, when I am sad, angry, hurting, devastated, I need you to pray for me because I am selfish in my prayers. And I, and I, all I want, I don't want joy. I don't want to fight for that. I don't want to fight for, I don't want to like trust God. I know you're going to do something big and great through this. I don't know what it is. I don't want to look to the future. I want to wallow for a very long time. Is anybody else with me on this? And so what we do is in prayer, it just, we, we're able to gently come alongside of somebody, not erase their grief, not negate their grief, but to draw their hearts to the possibilities of what God could be doing. Now, there are things you can pray for somebody that you can't say to somebody. For example, when somebody's grieving, you can look, don't look at them and say, it's all gonna work out. That's offensive. <laughs> but you can pray to them and say, God, I, I don't know what you're up to. I do know that your word says you will work this out. And we look forward to that day. So God, before that, between this day and that, I pray you, you would teach them to cast their anxieties on you and feel the full weight of their grief, but Lord, may they never turn their finger against you. On the other hand, if you look at them and say, stop pointing your finger at God, you're a jerk. But there is something about going before the Lord and praying for somebody that allows you to center them in a way that sometimes your words just can't do. And it's, it's striking. I'm, I'm amazed at the things people can say to me when they pray for me. And I've never been upset I mean, maybe you could be like, make him less ugly, and that might, whatever. But like, I've never been upset when somebody prays hard things over me. There's something very pure about that moment where even when we're praying, my brain is less defensive and my heart is open to the possibility that God may be up to something bigger than just this thing. Let's come back to John 17, verse 14. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Let me translate. God, I know, you're expect, I know they're expecting that I'm going to bring immediate world domination, peace and ease, and they're going to reign with me. And I know unmet expectations with you can be painful and leave wounds for generations. But would you give them something greater than easy happiness? Would you give them true, unshakable joy that transcends momentary affliction? When you pray for somebody, remember that God is likely forming something in them far more valuable than easy happiness. And Jesus got this when he prayed over them. Felony number two, they want safety. But Jesus prays for spiritual protection. <clears throat> Every trip our kids go on, what do we pray? Keep them safe. Please, it is the dominant prayer of every mom and some dads. <laughs> so my, my prayer, I, it's funny, this is not like hyper-spiritual, this is just my personality. I say, God, would you give them unforgettable experiences? <laughs> and then every mom looks at me and says, no, no, that is not what we want for our children, stop it. And I, I don't think God minds praying for safety. I think that's valuable and good, and that is, that is a, a protective, good instinct to pray. And by the way, like, 
I don't know how all this works in the spiritual realm. And so if that prayer prevents a car accident, I'm gonna keep praying that prayer. Go for it. Look at verse 14. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. Remember, the world is gonna murder them. He's like, I'm not asking that, that the world doesn't hurt them. I'm not asking that they're not gonna be murdered. I'm not asking that they're not gonna be tortured. I'm not asking they're not gonna be crucified upside down or burned in a pot of oil or whatever happened with all the other disciples. I'm not asking that you prevent any of that. That's their job. They knew this. When they signed up to follow me, they knew that inevitably was gonna be the outcome. Here's what Jesus prays for. I pray that you keep them from the evil one. I pray that you keep them from the evil one. What does this mean? Well, the book of Luke actually, I think, tells us. So I'm going to put it on the screen, but I think this is one of the most important verses in the Gospels to understand what is happening here. Luke 22, 31. Jesus looks at Peter. He's also called Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. When you look at three things, number one, like in the book of Job, Satan approached God. He wasn't polite. He didn't say, hey, God, I know there's this guy, Peter, over here. Like, what do you think? Satan approached God demanding him. Let me destroy him, I demand it. Number two, Satan demanded permission to shake Peter so violently that he would fall. Satan knew he couldn't take Peter's soul, that's God's, but he can disqualify him from ministry. He, he, he can put him in a position that exploits his weaknesses so terribly that he'll never ever be able to pick his head up in confidence again and he will run from the will of God. I mean, this is like one of the most simple tricks that Satan plays. If I get a, can get a Christian to do something really dumb and then publicize that dumb thing, then I can cast shame over them for the rest of their lives. It's very simple. And then we buy into it. We own the shame. We are the shame. I am my failure. And then we never get up and do the things God asks us to do. Demonic warfare 101. Number three, it seems that the father said yes to Satan's request, just like he did to Job. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He doesn't say the father said no. He, he actually is acknowledging you're about to be subjected to a set of experiences that will test your faith. And when these experiences come to you, my prayer for you is that you don't fail. The fact that I'm even telling you this, Job didn't even get that dignity. Peter has access to information that I bet Job wishes he had. And then he says this, when you have turned again, meaning after you fail, get up and strengthen your brothers. That's a huge line. Satan demanded you. The father gave him permission. And when you've failed, get up. What if your hardship is not totally 
or even about you at all? What if you're on display for someone else? What if you're on display for someone else and you're saying, God, take this from me, take this from me, take this from me, take this from me, and he doesn't, and you're like, I beg, why doesn't God listen to me? You're dealing with the felt need. Sometimes it's actually not about the thing. It's about something that's deeper than the thing. And this is where it takes time and testing and discerning and evaluating. And it takes other people coming alongside of you to pray for you and to say, God, what are you actually doing here? It also takes maturity to step back and say, God, I give you permission to make my life hard for the sake of someone else, maybe even someone I don't know. Who was Job on display for? Satan. God permitted Job to be functionally tortured, to make a mockery of Satan. I've, just, I've learned from Job, I've learned from Jesus, I've learned from you, that this thing is rarely ever just about this thing. If you keep reading and listening to what Jesus says, I mean, he's, there's a lot going on here. You learn quite a bit about spiritual protection. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. This is all in the context of protection. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. But physical protection, that's not as highest value. I don't think it's wrong to pray for that, but for these guys, that's not as highest value. And for their sake, I sanctify or consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Sanctified means to be made holy or to be made more like Jesus. Very simple. So notice a couple things. First, protection does not mean removal from the battle. He doesn't say keep them from difficulties, keep them from the battle, keep them from spiritual war. No, it's actually a given. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be in the middle of a spiritual war. And they're going to be very invested to making sure you're not aware that you're in a spiritual war, but don't be dumb. Open your eyes. The thing is not about the thing. Second, your personal holiness is a line of defense even the evil one cannot break. If he can't get you to sin, what does he have? Do you hear me? So you're sitting there. You're by yourself. Whatever it is, the thing, right, that you're tempted to, if he can't get you to do that, he has no accusation over you whatsoever. And so what we do is we, we kind of, this world, we forfeit personal holiness, the blood of Christ will cover me. And I love that the blood of Christ covers my ridiculous sin. But Paul says, should we sin more so that grace shall abound? No, because it just makes you a big fat target for the evil one to be exploited and to be shamed and to fall prey to spiritual warfare 101. Your personal holiness Living according to God's word, being obsessed. If there's like something in my life that isn't aligned with God's word, if you will commit your life to that and when you mess up, own it and confess it, holy smokes, what does the evil one have? And the third thing we need to see here is that your personal holiness and transformation, and I just appreciate this, it is directly connected to you in spending time with the word of God. That there is something powerful and supernatural for Jesus as he understands the word. 
He gives them his words. They record his words. The apostles document his words so that the word of God could be accessible for the people of God because when the people of God access the word of God, powerful transformation happens. But here's the deal. This is why we kind of give up. It usually doesn't happen all at once. It happens slowly, incrementally as we do the hard thing and we align our mind to the word of God and our heart to the word of God and our lives to the word of God. The transformation is a slow, steady, forward motion progress. And we're like, I didn't feel anything today. So I didn't read the Bible because I don't feel anything. And that's not the point. Sometimes the greatest things, they don't feel good or you don't feel anything, but over time they do their work and the deepest parts of us in our mind and our heart. And so Jesus prays over them. God, God, I pray for their holiness. And I also pray that you don't keep them from my words because their holiness is directly connected to my words. Keep my word and their holiness as the protective mechanism around their mind, their heart, and their life. If you want to not fall prey to the attacks, it's actually going to happen. These two things for Jesus are paramount. He doesn't pray that everything would be easy. He doesn't pray for their safety because he already knows they're going to die. They're not safe. He prays that they wouldn't give the evil one an ounce of ammunition through their holiness and through their time in the word. Felt need number three. We see this throughout the disciples, um, the three years they were with Jesus, but they, they want position. And Jesus prays for their unity. Who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's gonna be me. No, shut up. It's gonna be me. No, he loves me more. Like I even, <laughs> I can't to this day get over how John references himself in his gospel. You guys remember what he calls himself? The one whom Jesus loved. Now, I know he's not sassy when he says it, and God inspired it, so I'm sure it's wonderful. But, like, imagine if, like, Peter and I were hanging out. I'm like, I'm the one Jesus loves. You know, like, come on, this is ridiculous. But I love it. It's, it's, but you see this, like, almost competition amongst these brothers all throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. And what do they want? There's a real part of them that wants to be first. They want to be the most important. They want to have the most authority. They want to be able to tell all the brothers what's going on. I want you to just, I'm going to, I'm going to read through a few verses here, and uh, I want you to just watch the theme of unity. Verse 20, I, I don't ask for these only. This is praying for us in this as well. But for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Like oneness, I mean, there's a whole separate sermon on the implications of unity for mission. We're gonna do that in a different sermon maybe. Number two, verse 22, it says, the glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be, what's the word? One, even as we are one. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What happens when a team loses more than they win? Really two options. They either lean into one another or they turn on each other. My son's uh, fifth and sixth grade team Lost every game this season. We had a party. The coach was so humble and kind. And these kids 
were together. They didn't call each other names. If you whatever, nothing. I was so impressed. I was like, you guys, I will take a losing season with this attitude a thousand times over than an undefeated season where your character crumbles and you become arrogant jerks. Like, these, these boys are in fifth and sixth grade and they're, they're just a crazy group of kids. But you know what I found? I found this, this group of kids, they walked out of that season loving each other. That's rare. What happens to a team when they're fighting a battle and they're under attack? They either lean into each other or they turn on one another. Let's get more personal. What happens in a marriage when both are overwhelmed? They lean into one another or they turn on each other. So the New Testament church was under extreme duress and persecution. And there were, this is like after the Holy Spirit's given, okay? There were a lot of fights. I don't know if you know this. It was like drama. And the evil one loved to bring up disunity because what happens when people are disunified? They turn on each other, that's sin, and then they become completely impotent and ineffective. So multiple of these troublemakers, they're mentioned by name. Here's one, Demetrius. He's mentioned in 3 John 1 as a troublemaker who loves to be first and doesn't acknowledge John's authority. It's a big deal. Diotrephes. He's mentioned in 3 John 1 also as a troublemaker who loves to be first and he doesn't welcome the apostles, even goes as far as to slander them. There's a guy named Alexander the coppersmith, so if you needed any copper work, you could go to him. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4 as someone who did Paul a great deal of harm and opposed his message. Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. They're individuals who have departed from the truth, spread false teaching, and were causing trouble in the church. I don't know. I don't want to be the guy named <laughs> in any of the New Testament letters. In Acts 15, we have a very, very sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, two very godly, beloved leaders in the church. And their disagreement was whether or not this other guy, John Mark, was capable of going with them in this hard ministry. One said no. One says yes. The fight was so intense that they had to separate and go their own ways. Don't worry, they all reconciled in the end and it worked out and they're in heaven together doing great. Galatians chapter two, Paul describes how he had to oppose Peter to his face because Peter was acting inconsistently with the gospel. That is embarrassing. It even seems Barnabas fell prey to that as well. Like you start reading through the New Testament and these are just the leaders fighting with each other. That's a whole different story when you talk about the conflicts happening inside the churches. First Corinthians, I mean, and Second Corinthians, that whole church, they're nuts. They are not okay. If you went to that church and you were semi-healthy, you'd leave in a heartbeat and you'd move and you'd go over to Ephesus for sure. <laughs> Let me tell you how I have seen division ransack churches. Divided elder boards get nothing done. Zip. Most healthy leaders will leave a stagnant church with bickering elders. Divided churches are primarily focused on fighting over mission, and most mission-minded people and people who are passionate for the gospel will not stay very long. So you're just left with a bunch of fighters. Divided churches are an open door for demonic warfare, salvations, baptisms, 
and growth are generally collateral damage. You don't see it. Most doctrinally sound churches will eventually fall apart because of disunity, almost exclusively. We're going to put big buckets here. Churches either fall apart because they abandon the gospel and the word of God or because they're disunified. Unity, on the other hand, isn't it great? When you're in it, it is so wonderful. When you and your spouse are on the same page, isn't life amazing? And when you're not, aren't you more irritable with everybody? Like who in their right mind would choose disunity over unity? That's ridiculous. Unity is a gift that, that reverberates for generations. It is absolutely the best environment for spiritual health. Psalm 133 verse one says this, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And, and I wrote this as a warning to myself. Michael, know this. If I'm sowing seeds of disunity in John 17, Jesus is actively praying against me. I don't want to be on the negative end of Jesus' intercession and prayers. Do you? No. So what is inspiring Jesus to, to pray like this? He knows, number one, the hardship that is coming. And he knows that this team is going to be tempted to turn on each other. But number two, he also knows firsthand what it means to be unified perfectly with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to live in perfect unity and the joy that comes with that. And when you've experienced health anywhere, for the people you love, all you want for them is to know that health. That brings God much glory. And so when you pray for somebody, inevitably in any hardship, there is gonna be someone somewhere in the line of fire, and maybe it might even just be God. And so we pray that their heart would be tendered to God or to those in their life that there is conflict because for Jesus, the will of God is unity. And two so what's. Number one, remember when you're praying for someone, this thing, it's rarely ever just about this thing. Ask, test, discern, evaluate. When you're praying for someone, don't be afraid to go deeper than the felt need. Uh, there's a little funny thing about praying for somebody's needs. You can pray things that you can't say to their face. And I, I don't even mean this in a bad way. I could look at you and I could say, get over it, be happy. The Lord's gonna work it all out. And you'd be like, you're a jerk because that would be a mean, jerky thing to say. Or you could pray, hey God, I I know you're up to something here. Would you, would you give all of us a vision to what you're doing here? And, and in the process, would you just minister to them in their grief, but don't let us ever lose sight to, to the fact that you were in control. You've allowed, ordained, or permitted all things. If, if it got to them, it had to go through you. So God, would you just, would you show us a glimpse of what that is? Do you, do you see how it's different? I'll tell you something. There are some things you can't say to me, but when you're praying over me, my heart is tender and open to the Lord in a different way. And so what I've just learned is pray bold things over people. Now, I'm not going to say, I pray that you... <laughs> There's so many funny things you can pray that's just offensive. No, I want, I want them to pray God's will. 
I want them, I want them to open and open their eyes to see, God, you might be up to something here. God, would you show them what you're up to? Would you, would you help them with their joy? I know the grief and the pain is overwhelming. Would you, would you protect their joy? God, I know they're mad at you right now. God, would you tenderize their heart to you and show them what you're up to? There are things you can legitimately pray over somebody and it will be accepted that you should probably never say to their face unless you have a great relationship. Number two, lastly, if you're not a Christian, God is only up to one thing in your life and that is your salvation. Whatever the hardship, whatever the challenge, whatever the thing in front of you, the thing behind the thing is that God is working in your life to bring you to the point where you see that Jesus Christ is not just God, but your God. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place. Are there good things happening in your life? All of the good things are there to give you a glimpse and a shadow of the kindness and goodness to God in your life. Whatever's going on in your life, here's what you need to understand. Everything is allowed, ordained, or permitted so that you might see Jesus and believe in him as your God. This is the end destination. And so... If you ask a Christian to pray over you and you are explicitly not a Christian, like one of the things that I would probably pray over you is say, God, would you show them what you're up to in this and who you are? Would you show them the beauty and the truth of who Jesus is? Because here's what I know. The will of God before anything else is for you to know Jesus personally. And so whatever it is, it is designed to bring you to a place where you personally trust in Jesus. And might I, might I throw you a bone? Sometimes people have to be brought to their lowest place until they're humble enough to call the name of Jesus. Do not force God to bring you to the lowest place because you're too prideful to admit that you need a savior. Don't make him do it. And if you even have an inkling, if you know in your heart that Jesus Christ is your God and that he died on the cross for your sins, do not make him take you low just so that you can be ready to trust in Christ. At any time, anybody who believes in Jesus Christ, that he was God, that he died on the cross for his sins, was raised from the dead, you can believe in him and be saved today. You don't need to wait for him to take you down. And if he does, and there's a whole bunch of people in this room, I'm looking at a handful of you, God had to take you to nothing before you had the humility or before he could, you could call on him. That was not necessary. And most people will tell you that they wish they would have done it sooner. And so maybe you're here and you're already watching the Lord work in your life. You're already watching him take some things away. And you have this hunch that, that all of this is designed, all of this is here to point you to Jesus. And I would just say personally trust in him today for the very first time. If that's a decision that you are ready to make, let somebody know. Pray to God. Tell him you believe in him. Ask him to save you. And let somebody know that you came with. Come talk to one of us up front. We would love to take an opportunity to pray with you, to encourage you, and to champion you, and to celebrate with you that you have personally trusted in Jesus, that your sins are forgiven, that your eternity is secure, and all of it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you in your behalf. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ to you, and, and Lord, we, we want to be bold as we pray. We also want to center one another on you. Lord, we just all confess we are all prone 
and our own hardship and our own challenges and our own difficulties to be obsessed with ourselves and to want nothing more than the inconvenience to go away. But God, I pray you would, you would give us even a heart to pray for deeper things. What are you up to? What are you doing? And I pray you would protect us from the evil one. Not that we wouldn't be shot at, not that we wouldn't be in the battle, but that we would refuse to bend the knee to sin so that he can never accuse us or shame us. But God, when we do, I wanna just say thank you for the blood of Christ that covers us, that redeems us. I'm thankful for stories like Peter after he failed. Jesus, you went up to him and you recommissioned him. And you picked up his head and you did not let shame be what defined him. You took away that dart of the evil one. And God, I just, I pray for the holiness of the men and women, students and children in this church that as we face temptation, we would rise above and we would be faithful to you. Lord, as we kind of pull back from all of this, may you build at Village Church, even those who are visiting, a commitment to pray for one another boldly for the felt need and for the thing beneath the thing. Would you reveal your will and what you're up to? We ask all of this in the mighty, powerful, saving name of Jesus. Amen, Ville Church. Amen.